All right, 1 Corinthians. You guys enjoying 1 Corinthians so far? we got a long way to go, but that's okay. We're not in a rush, are we? Previously in verses 10 through uh, 17, if you remember from our last study, Paul was pleading, literally pleading with his brothers and sisters there in Corinth, and he asked them to speak the same things, to be united in, in things, and he also asked them to reunite a church which had been divided. He was speaking on the problem of division there to the Corinthian church, and, and we talked about it. It had been divided into various groups, people rather than identifying with Christ or identifying with certain men. Uh, some were identifying with Paul, some were identifying with Apollo, some were identifying with Peter, and there was, of course, a, a really spiritual group who were saying that they were, they were identifying with Christ, but they were missing the big picture of things. And, and Paul went on and he said to him, listen, it's not about me. It's not about the person who baptized you. It's not about, it's not about the man who is teaching you. It's, and, and he went on to say, in fact, I only baptized a few of you. I bat, and he gave the, us the names of a few families that he had baptized. He goes, and if I baptized anybody else, I can't remember. Paul was trying to take their attention off the teacher and put it back on Jesus Christ because he should be the focus. And they had gotten away and they had, they had kind of followed their, their desires. Well, I like the way this teacher teaches. And I like the way that teacher teaches. And, you know, certain teachers that appeal to a different way. And that's okay. We talked about, you know, denominations aren't necessarily bad, that they, they appeal to different things and different people. And, and that's all okay. But as we came into verse 17, and we're going to start there this morning just for the sake of context, we read this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Please remember that Corinth was in Greece, and the people of Greece were known to be philosophical. They were deep thinkers, if you will. Human intellect was important to them. Your, a lot of your philosophers come out of there. It, it was important. Human wisdom was important to them. They were very impressed with great orators or people who, had, who could speak eloquently or had a gift, had, had a, a, a golden tongue, if you will, that they could, they could really speak well. And they were drawn to people like that. And it wasn't so much the message, it was the person. They could speak anything, but you just wanted to hear them talk because they were so good at it. They'd make you laugh. They could entertain you. They could do all those things. And, and what happened is the focus went from the gospel, from the cross, from what Christ accomplished on the cross. It went to the person who was speaking the message rather than the message. And Paul actually said there that the cross of Christ could be made of no effect. It's possible to make it of no effect, Paul's saying. Well, how is that possible? How could you possibly make the cross of Christ? If it's preached with wisdom of words, if it's preached with clever language, it, 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 you can take the focus away from the cross and it can be about the church, it can be about the organization, it can be about the pastor, it can be about the mission of the pastor. What is the pastor accomplishing? What are, what are they trying to do? It can be, oh, he's a funny pastor and he keeps me laughing all the time. You can easily diminish or dilute the cross of Christ by taking the focus off of it. You know, Paul went on into verse 18. He's going to show us that the gospel literally can be made of no effect if it's presented in the wisdom of words. Or in other words, when he says wisdom of words, he's referring to worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Just, just the wisdom that comes not from God. Just the wisdom that would come that man can develop on his own without any help from the Holy Spirit. Without any help from the Lord. He's going to introduce us to these two kinds of wisdom. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And that's what he's speaking here. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me read that again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's two groups of people here. And when Paul's referring to the message of the cross, he's referring to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel message will always include the cross. It has to. It's not a gospel message if it doesn't talk about the death of, death of, of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. If it negates or it leaves out the cross, it's not a full gospel message. Preaching a high moral standard is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the sovereignty of God is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the free will of man is not preaching the gospel. Preaching biblical principles to live by is not preaching the gospel. Preaching values and morals is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ always has the death of Christ for your sins and then his resurrection to prove that his, sin, that your, that your, that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. It has to include those things, otherwise it's being watered down. From time to time, I heard a story recently about a guy that was going into high schools and he was sharing the gospel, but it was a bit of a watered-down gospel. And he was getting people, young teenagers, to come to Christ and the way he was doing it, not praying a prayer of repentance, but giving him a thumbs up if they agreed with what he was saying. I don't agree. That's not the gospel. The gospel has to move somebody to a place of repentance where in faith they realize Christ died not for your sins, but for my sins. It has to be my gospel. It has to be my message. When we hear the words message of the cross in our culture it sounds kind of noble it sounds kind of intellectual it sounds kind of cool it doesn't have the same meaning to us today as it did back then when paul wrote those words message of the cross you see back then in the first century the message of the cross that was a hideous message the cross was was terrible it'd be like us saying the message of the electric chair or the message of lethal injection it was the means by which people were, were being killed. You couldn't go to the store and buy a cross necklace. You wouldn't wear a t-shirt with a cross on it around back, back then. The cross was nothing. It, it was, you didn't even talk about it. If you had family members that were killed on the cross or crucified, you, did, you didn't even speak about it. It was a terrible reminder. It was the most brutal and in, inhumane form of punishment. It was perfected by the Romans to strike fear into the hearts of any person who would ever think about rebelling against them. It was a prolonged death designed to cause the worst suffering imaginable to a human being. They would hang for days on the cross sometimes. The entrance to many Roman-occupied towns would be lined with crosses to remind people what would happen if they rebelled. It wasn't something that you wanted to be identified with. Death by crucifixion was so sadistic that a Roman citizen wouldn't even be crucified on a cross, unless, of course, there were special circumstances. Now, I want you to follow Paul's logic here. See if you can follow what he's saying. Paul's saying to some people, to some people, the idea of being saved from their sins and saved from death by a Jewish, by a Jewish carpenter who was crucified on a Roman cross is just foolishness. They would say, it's just stupid. As a matter, matter of fact, that Greek word for foolishness is where we get our English word for moron. It's just moronic, you could say. It doesn't make any sense. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's plain stupid. Some people would say that. What possible message could a cruel, humiliating, unrelenting instrument of death have? What could be good out of that? How is it that a man who was supposed to be the savior of the world could not keep himself from being crucified on a cross? They would say, that's not power, that's weakness. That's not, that's not intelligence, that's stupidity. It doesn't make any sense at all. If you're sitting here this morning and you're agreeing with those statements, I don't want you to miss the rest of Paul's statement there. Paul says this about you. He says, yes, the cross is foolishness to you, but he also says, you're perishing. 
You're dying. You're stuck in your sins. And we're hoping that'll change before the end of today's message. You see, there is a group of people out there who say the cross is foolishness. And Paul would say, you're dying in your sins. You don't understand. You don't get it. Because he would say there's another group of people out there. And to them, the cross is the power of God. To them, the cross brings life, what Jesus did on the cross. What he accomplished there brings salvation. It brings forgiveness for, them, for their sins. The message of the cross is the power of God to some. We know that when we believe on the work of the cross, there is a power that's brought into our lives. It's the power of God unto salvation. It has the, the, the message of the cross has the power to change someone's life instantly momentarily it sets you free from sin it sets you free from bondage all of a sudden death no longer has dominion over you it can change your life immediately the moment you come to a position of faith in fact there it is right there in verse 18 paul says the message of the cross is the power of god it means it is right now the moment you receive it it is the power of god not that it will be someday no it is the power of god john stott a commentator he said this I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to pain? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs are crossed, his arms are folded, his eyes are closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth and a remote look on his face. He is detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away and I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on a cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, his limb wrenched, his brow bleeding from thorn pricks, his mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. In other words, God, Christ, he identifies with your pain. He came to the cross... He didn't step outside of pain. He's, he experienced it. He knows every bit of pain that you could ever endure. He's been through worse. Because I'm pretty sure none of us sitting here have been beaten like he was. Or crucified on the cross or we wouldn't be sitting here. Verse 18, just to read it again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Think about the contrast there. And I want you to notice something else in that verse. The verb tenses there of the words are perishing and are being saved. They're both in the present tense. It means they're describing a work in progress. There's something that's ongoing there. You're moving in one of those two directions, in other words. You are either perishing or you are being saved or you are saved. If you're still struggling with the message of the cross as being foolish, stay with me through the rest of our study. Don't check out. There's more more to learn here. What you do with the message of the cross will determine your eternal destiny. Think about that. What someone does with the message of the gospel or the message of the cross determines where they will spend eternity. That's what Paul's saying here. 
since the culture there in Corinth was so impressed with man's wisdom, Paul's going to draw a contrast between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. Paul's seeking to prove that man's wisdom has its limitations and cannot play any part in salvation. And it's designed by God that way specifically. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This verse is quoted from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And when Isaiah was prophesying these words, he was speaking about Judah. Judah is the, is the southern kingdom of Israel. They'd begun to worship idols. They'd begun to turn away from God. They began to look to other nations to deliver them from their enemies rather than looking to God. They were relying on man's wisdom, man's counsel, man's advice. How do we solve our problems rather than looking to God? They were looking at the plans of man over the plans of God. As a matter of fact, they weren't even consulting God. They didn't even go to him and say, God, what do you think in this situation? How do you want to handle this, Lord? A little bit further along in Isaiah chapter 30, it says this, Woe to the rebellious children, he's speaking of the same people here, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. And who devise plans, but not of my spirit. They may add sin to sin. Who walk down to Egypt have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So the Lord said, I'm going to bring to nothing that understanding. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man has nothing. I'll destroy that wise counsel that you're getting. Man's wisdom cannot compete with God's wisdom. They're not even in the same ballpark. They're not even in the same league. Look at verse 20. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. In God's wisdom, God designed it so he, God Almighty, could not be found in the wisdom of men. He made it that way. You cannot find God in pure human wisdom. It doesn't exist. You can find him in creation, but the moment you have faith, you get the godly wisdom that you need to believe and to understand. You can't find him in education and worldly knowledge. God is found through faith in the message of the cross, and then your eyes are open to a whole new set of wisdom. Your worldly wisdom and your godly wisdom get married together, and you see things clearly. It's a wonderful picture how it happens. Let me ask you this. Where has all the wisdom of the world brought us in the last 2,000 years. Where have we come? Are we, are we so far advanced? Wouldn't you say we're smarter today than we were in the day of Christ? I mean, certainly we have more technology, right? We have all kinds of things. We have iPhones. We have nuclear reactors. We have computers. We have airplanes. We have space travel. We've got to have greater understanding of things. Not really. Are we any closer to world peace? No. Are we any, living any more moral of a life today than they were back then no are we more loving people no have we solved world hunger no are we less violent no violent crimes growing what about ongoing things like slavery hatred terrorism are they decreasing no they're all increasing with all the wisdom and all the technology we have 
we still face the same problems we had in the past. And in some cases, they're worse today than they were back then. We haven't solved much of anything. So what has man's wisdom really accomplished or changed? Nothing is what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying here. Man's wisdom will fail in comparison with God's wisdom. And here in verse 20, Paul's issuing a challenge. He's laying it out to him. He says, hey, scribe, where are you? Come talk to me. Come tell me how what you're teaching has changed somebody's life. Hey, philosopher, come and speak to me. Tell me what your message actually accomplished in the lives of the people that you teach. Has it changed their life? Come tell me about it. I want to hear about it. Come tell me what all your great worldly wisdom has. Tell me what it's done for society. Tell me, give me a family that you've changed because of your wisdom. He's kind of throwing out a challenge. Instead, in all of man's wisdom, do you know what the conclusion they came to is? There is no God. That's what they've come to. There is no God. Psalms 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So if that's man, all man's got, God says that's foolish. That's just plain dumb. It's ignorant. It's moronic. You don't understand. Years ago, Dr. Harry Ironside was walking in San Francisco, and he stumbled upon a group of his friends. And they asked him to share his testimony out loud there on the street, and he did. The crowd continued to grow, and he noticed off on the edge there a well-dressed man. And when he was finished, the well-dressed man came up and he handed him a business card. He immediately recognized the man's name, and he knew he was a man who had been speaking up and down the coast on the values of socialism and attacking Christianity. He was a well-known and outspoken agnostic, putting down Christianity whenever he could. As he turned the card over, on the back of the card it read like this, Sir, I challenge you to a debate over agnosticism versus Christianity. We'll meet next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and I will pay all expenses. Dr. Ironside read the card aloud to the group of people, and then he said this. He said, I'll be glad to this debate. I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, that in order to prove that you have something worth fighting for, that you have something worth debating about, you must promise to bring with you two people whose qualifications I'll give you in a moment as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. So Dr. Harry Ironside says, all right, I'm going to tell you what, I'll do the debate, but I want you to bring two people with you. Just two. You've got to bring two people. Go find two people. And here's the qualifications that he laid out. You must promise to bring with you one man and one woman. One man and one woman who were for years what we commonly call a down and outer. I don't care about the exact nature of the sins that, they, that had wrecked their lives and made them an outcast from society. I don't care whether it's a drunkard, a criminal of some kind, a victim of any sensual appetite, but two people who for years were under the power of evil habits from which they could not deliver themselves but who on some occasion entered one of your meetings and heard your glorification of, of agnosticism and your denunciation of the Bible and Christianity and whose heart and mind were so deeply stirred, they went away from the meeting saying, now I too am an agnostic. And as a result of embracing that particular philosophy, they found a new power had come into their life. The sins we once lived, we now hate. And righteousness and goodness were now the ideals of their life. They are now an entirely new person, a credit to themselves and an asset 
to society. All this because they're agnostic. Just bring two, he said. And on the other hand, he said this. He said, in return for you bringing one man and one woman, I'll bring, at the very least, 100 men and women who for years lived just as such a sinful degradation as I have tried to depict, but who have now been gloriously saved through believing the message of the gospel which you ridicule. I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ, as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. He said to the agnostic, he said, you bring two. You bring two. Find two people who your message has changed, who were once outcasts of society, and I'll bring a hundred. As he said this, the crowd, those in the crowd, began to cheer. They began to volunteer. I'll go for you. I've had my life changed. They raised their hands. Immediately he had 40 people standing right there agreeing to go with him up on the stage. The agnostic man at that point declined the debate. Dr. Ironside said he smiled, waved his hand in a depreciating kind of way as much as to say nothing doing and left the scene. You see, Dr. Ironside understood the passage. He understood the gospel of God could not and would not be vindicated in the intellectual debate or arguments of man. Instead, the power of the message of the cross will be seen in the lives of the people that it changes. That's the difference. You can argue it all day long and it has no power, but the moment you believe it is when the power takes over in somebody's life. It gives the power to change your life immediately. God's wisdom in the gospel message is illustrated by the countless lives of people that have been radically transformed, including many of you guys sitting here. Hopefully the gospel has radically transformed your life. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, for a period, hopefully you're continuing to grow stronger and walk taller and be able to you know, cling on to what's holy, cling on to what's good, leaving behind the sins of the flesh. That's what the gospel does. It changes your life. Paul's saying... We preach the message of Christ crucified, not because we expect the world to understand it, but because we know the power it has and the value it will have on every person who believes it. The power it has if you believe it. There is only one message that is powerful enough to change your life from the inside out. There is only one message that can offer you forgiveness of sins and eternal life the moment you believe and not leave you doubting and wondering if you're good enough. There is only one message that can set you free from sin and alter the course of your life immediately today. It's the gospel message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else provides that hope. Nothing else provides that promise. No other religion has that attached to it. Jesus said, I've, it is finished. The work is complete. The last question that Paul asked there in verse 20 was this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world for all the knowledge that man has it can't bring him into a relationship with god doesn't matter how smart they are the wisdom of the world denies the very existence of god doesn't it amaze you when you hear all the really intelligent scientists and doctors they look at the stars they look at the human body and they conclude it just evolved it just popped up out of nothing billions and billions of years and it just happened With all the intricacies of the human bodies and all the details, how is it possible? How did my mouth evolve the same time my esophagus, my stomach, 
my small and large intestines, all the other stuff that are just our digestive system. How did it all evolve at the same time? How is it, what's the probability of everything, just, just that one little part of our body evolving at the same time? What about my hands to catch the food? What about my eyes to see the food? How did, how did everything come together at just the right time? Do you know the likelihood of this happening? And it's only one system in our body. What about your eyes and all of the body, the, the complexity of your body to say, oh, it just happened. You look at the stars and the, the heavens. Oh, it, just, it just happened. It was, there was a big, big bang and it just happened out of nothing. To those that believe, we just look and go, that's foolish. That's foolishness. But you have to understand our eyes have been opened. Through faith, we can see what they can't see. Because the moment you believe, your eyes are open to the wisdom of God, and then you merge the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world, and it gives you a clearer picture of what's going on. Really intelligent people sometimes rely on the wisdom of the world, and God cannot be found in that wisdom. It's not going to lead you there. The amazing thing is when you have faith, you don't discard the wisdom of the world. It works together. All of a sudden, it gives you that clear picture. Maybe you've heard of Stephen Hawking. A physicist. He's got 12 honorary PhD degrees. He's in a wheelchair. He's, he's dying, or, as we all are, but he has a degenerative disease, a neuron disease. When asked about heaven, he said this. Very intelligent man, very smart man, very well educated. He said this about heaven. Heaven is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the dark. That's what he concluded. But there's another intelligent man by the name of Dr. John Lennox. He's a math professor. I don't know if he's just as intelligent. Like, how do you compare something like that? But he's just as educated, very intelligent, very well learned. And it, he answered Stephen Hawking. He's a Christian apologist, and he said this. He said, atheism is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the light. <laughs> Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It is significant that oftentimes the most educated people have the least regard for God. It's true. This is not always the case. Some of the most brilliant men of history have been Christians, such as Isaac Newton. There are those that believe. But largely the smarter one sees himself, the less regard he has for God. The smarter you see yourself, the less regard you have for God. I don't need God. I can handle it. I'm smarter than this. Human wisdom is constantly rejecting God and opposing him and ultimately showing itself foolish and perishing in doing so. Paul then tells us how he presented the message to the Jews and to the Greeks. Look at verse 22. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block, stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. The Jews, they always wanted a sign. They went to Jesus and show us a sign. They wanted Jesus to give, give them a sign to validate his ministry. Do you remember? Show us a sign. All the healings, all the miracles, all the testimonies. That's not good enough. Come show us a sign. Give us a sign. What did Jesus say to them? In Matthew chapter 12, he said this to them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart 
of the earth. What did he tell him? He goes, I'm the son of man, and I'm going to spend three days and three nights. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise again. That'll be your sign. Did they believe? No. What did they do? They had made up lies on that his apostles stole his, stole his body. It's impossible. They, they, made, they, they made up lies about it. They, they got the sign they wanted. They still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. The Jews wanted a sign. What did the Greeks want? They want wisdom. Come to us on human intellect and, and prove to us that God exists on human intellect. You can't do it. it doesn't, it's not there. We want, we want intellectual proof of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There's historical proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We want intellectual on, on the, show me, prove it to me with intellectual wisdom that the sins are paid for on the cross. I can't do it. It comes from faith. But the moment you believe, the power of God is put into your life and you, and you live a whole new life. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. Verse 24, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're called, if you understand, if you have faith and believe in Christ, you will have the power of God and you will also have the wisdom of God. That's what he's saying. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's what the scripture says. The wisdom of God is only obtainable by faith on what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's why when intellectual people, when really smart, really well-educated people look at something and they don't come to the same conclusion a believer does, they don't have the faith that instills in them the wisdom of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 2 explains it beautifully. It says this, by faith, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. How do we understand that? Because it's by faith. You can't come to the conclusion that there's a God and a creator without faith. They try. We call it intelligent design. and There has to be a designer. And yes, all that makes sense. But without the faith, they're not going to see it. But the moment somebody believes, you know what happens? You know what happens when an intellectual person comes to Christ? They start doing the research. They start looking back. Oh, I was taught this. What about this? They start going back. And you know what? Their eyes are opened. They go back over everything they were taught. And all of a sudden, they're looking at it from a godly wisdom and not just a worldly wisdom. It's amazing what it opens their heart and their minds to. But why is it like this? Why does faith have to come first? Why do we have to have faith before understanding? Look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When Paul says foolishness and weakness of God, he's, not, he, he's referring to the unbeliever's point of view. He's not saying God is foolish or God is weak. He's saying that's what you would call him. That's what you would call the, the message of the cross, foolishness and weakness. He's not saying that's what it is. He said there, there's, there is no foolishness and weakness in God, but that's what he's being accused of. But if foolishness saves people, it really wouldn't be foolishness, would it? And if I could present hundreds that were saved by the foolishness of the cross, and you could present no one whose life was changed by being an atheist or an agnostic, which one's really foolish? You see, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's true. It doesn't make any sense to them. They don't get it. But to us who are being saved, it really is the power of God. It's the power of God to change our life. It all comes down to the message of the cross and what you do with it. Whatever you do with the message of the cross sets your eternal destiny, sets the course for your life. Either you're saved 
or you're perishing. It's the power of God to salvation, then you're saved. If it's foolishness, then Paul says you're perishing. He wouldn't agree with you. He wouldn't say it was foolishness too. He would just simply say that's what you believe. But here's the amazing thing. If you're perishing, if it's foolishness, know this. You have access to the power of God and to the wisdom of God by simply believing the message of the cross. It's that easy. You see, and the critic would also say, well, no, it can't be that easy. It's impossible. No, that's the way that God made it that easy. He wanted to make it easy for us. He wanted to make it so all we had to do was believe on Jesus Christ to have our sins forgiven and have our life changed. No, no, I've got to do more. I've got to be punished for my sins. You can't be punished. The punishment's already been paid. The price has already been paid. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Your sins have been paid. The question is, do you embrace that? Do you really realize what was accomplished for you on Calvary? As you look back over your life, you feel guilty about some things? You don't have to. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's forgiven. As far as the east is to the west. It says he chooses to remember our sins no more. But if you look at the cross and you say it's foolishness, you're perishing. You're headed for hell. You're headed for the lake of fire. But you don't have to go. You can turn that, you can jump over to the other path anytime you want. Well, how do I do that, Rob? You simply believe on Jesus Christ. You believe, you, you, you take the word of God and you believe on it. And you say, all right, I believe the cross. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I want the forgiveness in my life. And you make that little quiet prayer to yourself, to yourself between you and the Lord. Lord, I want to follow you. I for, forgive me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I've messed up my life enough. Would you take over? Would you handle it from here? I just want to follow you. You don't have to do anything except believe. And the moment you believe, all of a sudden your life will start to change. Little by little, piece by piece, here, there. The way you think will change. The way you act will change. You'll go to places and you'll feel guilty for being there all of a sudden. Why? Because the Lord's working in your life and he's changing you. And you can't continue on that same path. The guilt that comes with the sin, you, you won't want it anymore. It changes. So I guess the only question really left is, what does the message of the cross mean to you? That's the one you have to answer before you leave here. If the message to the cross to you is this morning is the power of God unto salvation, when we bow our heads and close our eyes, I want you to pray and thank God for that. Realize that you've neglected the power of God in your life. Realize that you've neglected the wisdom of God in your life. Realize that there's so much more available. I don't think any of us are tapping the full power of God available to us. We're told that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available in us. The same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead is available to you and I. There's no way that we're tapping into all that. No way we are. We want to, we should want to, but at the same time when we bow our heads in just a few minutes and pray, if the message of the cross has been foolishness to you, I would encourage you to bow your head and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I don't want to continue this way. I want to follow you. I want my life changed. I don't like where it's brought me. I want to know what you have for me, Lord. Why did you create me? Show me the path that you have. And immediately, you'll be changed. I love hearing the stories of when someone accepts Christ and they, they're like, he was in the room with me. He was right there. He was, I, you don't understand how special that was. It's amazing. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We come before you, Lord, just for a few minutes, just to open our hearts. And Lord, if it's praise and worship, then that's what we do. If it's, Lord, if it's repentance. And if, it's, we have, if, if to us the cross has been nothing but foolishness, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for that, Lord. May we remember what you accomplished there. May we remember what it accomplished in us. And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, may they make the choice right now between you and them, Lord, to follow you.